Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, hello everyone. I'm here again with another one of our MacEmerge alumni who's out there making great change in the world. And I want to welcome back Dr. Blair Brigham to the podcast. So hi, say hi to everyone, Blair. Hi, everyone. All right. So we have a segment called Whatever Happened to You. And we've had some really big names, but you're a big name on the rise. So I'm going to kind of put it out there that you've been doing some really cool stuff. Um, and I think that you had uh, pitched to me about some recent work that you've been doing with Canadian. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We're uh, working on some really exciting uh, education opportunities at Canadium as the entire medical world looks to bolster their education talent. All right. Well, why don't we start with a little bit of catch up? Um, what have you been up to lately? I know that you ran away to the U.S. to, you know, uh, Stanford and uh and that was pretty cool. It must have been really awesome being in. It was uh, awesome. The weather was awesome. Yeah. Stanford was awesome. Uh, two years of critical care in a very, very highly resourced center gives you an awful lot of technology and sick people to combine together. And it was a really, really good time, but definitely happy to be back in um, my home of Toronto. Does that feel like almost uh, a different world when you come back? Like the, it must be feeling like you went to the future and came back. It, it's surreal in a way. In some ways, it is the future over there. Um, it's it's a very, very different system. Uh, but in many ways, they're, they're behind on equity. They're behind on access. And I, I did sort of always have this little icky feeling that although I thought I was doing good work and helping people, I knew that those people had to have a credit card to get through the front door. And so when I came back to Canada, yes, I, I mean, we are much less resourced, particularly in the emergency departments. Oh my goodness, the difference between the Stanford emergency department and the emergency departments I work at in Toronto are night and day in terms of their resourcing. But um, at the end of the day, Everyone can get into a Canadian emergency department, um, even if you have to wait, even if you have to sit on the floor, at least I know you're going to be seen. Fair. Um, and I think that like other systems level issues that are going on in the U.S. because of their politics probably probably will be changing, not, not so much in California, but across their their nation. So well, even in California, there was definitely um, there are geographies within California that are much more red than blue. So even though I was I was living and working in Silicon Valley, a lot of the patients that we served were coming in from the Central Valley or from other areas that had different sort of political leanings. Um, uh, and that was a, a really interesting part of being down there. Um, I was uh, down there for a number of uh, big political events. And as a Canadian, I was somewhat immune to how that would affect me. But seeing how it affected my colleagues made me realize just how um, how critical politics is for the, the lives of people working in healthcare. All right. So speaking of politics, I think the other side of politics is sometimes you know, what we can do as everyday people around advocacy. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about 
what you've been working on with Canadian and maybe a little bit you've been doing some work with U of T as well around advocacy? Yeah, one of my passions is how we communicate uh, with the public in a way that allows people to make decisions that can positively affect their health. And of course, we've seen what happens during the pandemic when there's misinformation or disinformation out there that people buy into and it leads them to make choices that don't support good health. And of course, that led to overrun ICUs and hospitals and the collapse of our healthcare system uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, And so I try to combine my skills as both an educator and a journalist to sort of rethink the way we communicate traditionally with the public and bring in sort of a, what I call a journalism skill set so that we are better at telling stories that people can uh, find engaging and find trustworthy. Uh, and so I, I worked a lot with the team at Stanford and, and prior to that at McMaster um, and now at U of T at how we can really build curricula Uh, and strategies for physicians, um, right from medical school all the way through to the hospital CEO or the chief of staff or the the research lead on a project. Whoever you are in healthcare, you have content area expertise, you have passion, and you see devastation in your work, and you know the importance of the content that you know. And getting that out in an effective way that um, is trustworthy, that changes the way people behave so that they can be healthier is, uh, is key. And in my view, it can lead to more sort of net benefit than all the hours I spend in the emergency department. Because you're, um, you know, it, clinically, you tend to see one patient at a time. Uh, and there's only so much that you can do with those hours. Uh, it's important work. A lot of it is what I call Band-Aid work. It's fixing problems that are representative of larger societal gaps and flaws. Um, but the time that I dedicate to advocacy and science communication, sometimes I feel like the yield from that is even more than a busy shift in the emergency department. So it's something that I put a lot of energy into, and I'm really excited that we're able to bring some of that skill set into training programs. And one of those training programs, Teresa, as you know, is the Digital Scholarship Fellowship that Canadium has, which is really set up for senior residents to come in and learn how to master the online domain and get their messages out there. Yeah, and I think that like, you know, about half a decade ago when we first created it, there, there was much more of a need. I think um, now I think digital comes more easily uh, but it's also more fraught. So um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the the enthusiasm around digital education was um, something that 10 years ago, a lot of people didn't know a lot about. Um, a lot of people might not have had social media accounts. A lot of people might have been content users, but not content creators. The COVID pandemic really did accelerate all of this, didn't it? Everything sort of went online, half days went online, conferences went online. And so everyone sort of had to brush up on their digital game. And most people have pretty good digital content uh, creation expertise now. Um, Certainly people are more comfortable learning online and teaching online. But what we've learned through that experience is that there are pitfalls. Uh, We've seen the CPSO, for example, in Ontario, take a couple runs at policy around using social media. We've seen some, um, uh, I guess, a couple of disasters where social media use has 
not had its intended impact. Um, we've had a number of physicians criticized for their communications online, not only their content, Teresa, but also sort of the style at which they communicate. And so it's certainly been, I imagine, a bit of a headache for senior administrators in some hospitals and universities to figure out how do we support online teaching, online advocacy, online community, while still making sure that we are accurate and effective and respectful? Definitely. I mean, I think that a lot of what we do every day as clinicians on the front lines pales in comparison in scale sometimes to the work that we can do in the broader society at the systems level. Mm -hmm. And yet I think that without your everyday lens at the front, uh, front lines of healthcare, you can't tell the best stories that will resonate. So it's kind of like being an airplane pilot, right? Like you have to land the ship and then you have to fly again. And then I think that you, you need both views in order to yeah. appreciate um, the work that needs to be get done. Definitely. And, and there's also just so much content out there that being able to master your content so that when someone is scrolling through a busy feed or when someone is on the train heading into their class or into their job, they're able to say, oh, that's something I want to click on. And I'm not talking about clickbait. I'm talking about really useful content that resonates with people that, again, has impact. We want people, you know, we're not just writing about this to convey knowledge. We're trying to convey not only the information, but inspire people to take that information and act on it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, all right. So how do people find out more about uh, this program, Blair? Well, if you head over to the Canadian website, you'll find lots of information on exactly what's in the program. Um, but I'll give you the, the top level highlights. Basically, it's something for senior residents, uh, probably after they write their exam. Although if you wanted to get into it a bit early, it's the type of thing that you could do over one or two years. And it, it's a self-directed learning platform online where you're, you get a mentor and you follow through a couple modules that really give you that baseline skill set sort of upping your game so that you can then be successful in whatever project you choose to execute. Um, and so at the end of it, you're going to have a, a mentored output that is going to be able to be published or broadcast somewhere, whether that's as a blog, as an online adaptive learning module, as a podcast, um, or whether you're just sort of constructing your own digital identity and gaining some really good teacher skills. Um, you're going to walk away with this uh, with really what you want from it. And so people can head over to the website and sort of see what the different modules are and how you can kind of choose your own adventure to get what you want. And then of course, people are welcome to combine this with some other training program, be it a master's of education, the Royal College ClinEd diploma, uh, whatever it is that sort of education or communication parallel. I think combining these two programs to really give you that digital expertise along with the education or communication expertise will wind up, you know, you'll be a superstar. Excellent. Yeah, I think that layering it on top and using this as an access point to a national bunch of mentors that allows you to do really cool things, I think is, is pretty awesome. So, um, well, thank you very much for spending the time to talk to us about advocacy. I think it's really important. Um, speaking of advocacy, I know that you have taken 
you know, um, a journey into journalism and have a book that's out. So I think we'll have to bring you back uh, another time to be able to have you tell us a little bit more about that story, the story of the story, I guess. <laughs> I would love to tell you more about that adventure. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up for now and uh, we'll check you again next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Tichan. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. Okay, everyone, I'm here with Aleem Naji again for Teaching That Counts. And Aleem, I think it's been a long time since we actually had a podcast. So how have you been feeling the last little while? Oh, you know, nothing, uh, nothing, nothing too unusual. You know, I just felt really left out this year. So I was like, you know what? I just really have to get COVID. I have to hear what the fuss is about. So, you know, I went out to this, one of those COVID parties, got it, you know, felt great, felt amazing. It, oh it, it's, it's been the best. 2022 is after an amazing start. <laughs> you could probably not joke about the COVID parties because I'm sure that that actually has happened. But I mean, thank you for your service and thank you for taking one for the team. And I hope you feel better soon. But, uh, you know, opportunistically, we're able to, you know, um, spend some time together nerding out. So that's great. But um, yeah, I thought maybe this time around, we haven't talked about kind of like the behind the scenes parts of teaching. And I think we've talked about a lot of the frontline stuff, but I think that, you know, sometimes the whole business of education um, is, is more than just that frontline teaching. I think that's invaluable, but there's stuff that keeps the lights on and, and provides the structure and the support for everyone to actually go and do their teaching right like there's all these avows we've talked about how to optimize feedback we've talked about how to you know do great supervision how to do you know use the one minute preceptor or snaps or other kind of like tools to be able to great be great bedside teachers but i mean you're the ctu director you were the ctu director and now you're the clerkship director so clearly there's a pathway and an avenue for people to do that kind of teaching and educational um leadership and design as well. So would, would you speak a little bit about that kind of the difference between those jobs from your perspective? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because you start looking at it from this individual student in front of you to how do I build like a program? And there's kind of different elements that you have to think about there. And the first piece is like the objectives and then you have your curriculum itself. And then I like to think about scholarship or some type of output as a way of kind of linking in things like program evaluation and kind of closing the circuit on, right? And so. As I've kind of moved through those different roles, we've had an opportunity to, to revisit some of those curricular pieces and kind of look at it and say like, how do I go from teaching that one student in front of me to actually building a program of education? Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about curriculum design. What are the elements? There's a very famous um, framework that people call the Kern six step framework. I, I think Kern and Hutchison actually did it together. Um, but uh, it has kind of like six steps of designing a curriculum, but then there's like, it's kind of like a flower where all the different points kind of like connect to each other. So it's, it's not really like, it's not like you can, you have to do it in order, but they kind of talk about kind of like six components of any core curriculum. So shall we go through kind of what that all is? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the first piece is uh, like pro that problem identification, right? So like, what are we actually kind of doing? Um, and then as part of that, there's usually like a kind of global needs assessment, right? So really asking the question of like, 
what is the kind of broad pieces that I want to know about this, right? So what are um, sort of the audiences that I want to kind of do? What sort of like the, is, is there actually a need in the community itself uh, for something like that? And from that, you kind of dovetail nicely into the targeted needs assessment itself. So you can get actually like specific and granular about what you're trying to design. Yeah, for sure. And I think, think um, a lot of people are confused because sometimes in Kern's original book, I think he called it, instead of problem identification, he called it about general needs assessment. Um, and I think that what he was trying to get at is that when you're identifying the problem, you should probably involve some kind of like broad generic needs assessment that goes across the literature. So see who else has encountered this problem, what else there is, because anytime you're doing something in education, you want to try to build on the shoulders of giants rather than reinventing the wheel, right? Like, I think that um, turning to kind of inspiration, see who has written innovation reports, or, you know, there's a whole repository called MedEd Portal, where you can go and see if someone's actually already written the lesson plan you need for next week. <laughs> That's amazing <laughs> when you find someone else's slide deck that has Creative Commons licensing, you download it and then you add to it, right? So there's definitely that problem identification is, is really encouraging you to look beyond your own little bubble um, of yourself, uh, triangulate with, let's say, learners, community, your local kind of like uh, educational milieu, but then also zooming out to see who else in the in the world has maybe had this problem as well so that you can you can learn from them, right? So that's that's kind of like the general needs assessment or problem identification. And then I think the target needs assessment is like what we all see as needs assessment, right? It's the surveys, it's the focus groups, it's the interviews, it's the way of understanding what the learners need, right? And and as we've advanced into kind of like that more user-centered design, it's a lot of the time, the some of the stuff that you're doing in your clip trip is things like, you know, um, engaging in focus groups with your learners, um, bringing them in as reps on council, um, actually having people involved in making and innovating and changing, you know, the, the needs, right? So um, I think that's that's actually really important to kind of have that stakeholdership. Yeah, these two steps are important because I think a lot of people jump in and just start writing curricula, right? And they say, oh, I'm going to write this like one talk, or I'm going to say that I think this is important, but they don't take that step back and say like, how does this fit in the larger pool that's there? And this is where a lot of the work can often be done for you, right? Because like, if there is already an example of a curriculum, why not take that and adapt that rather than starting kind of from scratch? And I think we start a little bit too narrow. So taking this broader step, especially if you're newer to uh, an education role, or you're taking on, let's say, a curriculum, or you're developing an elective for a student who's coming through your rotation, these are kind of the first steps to take and kind of really set that. Because once you've done that, now you can drill down and say, what are the goals and what are the objectives, right? And your goals are kind of like those overarching things that you want them to get, whereas your objectives are really specific, right? So what exactly is going to happen? Who exactly is going to do what? What do you want that learner to take away with at the end of it? And I like to really focus this down into like two or three things, right? And so for example, for our clerkship, we've made it clear, right? My goals are that they have an approach to an undifferentiation. They can tell who's sick and not sick. And they can do that kind of initial generating some type of differential diagnosis and communicating to their staff. This is what I think is roughly going on because those are translatable skills. Right? And those are skills that are not only unique to emergency medicine, they cross uh, pretty much every specialty, and they're a really good core foundation for clerks to walk away from. So I always keep those in mind when people come to me and say, hey, look, I think it would be really interesting for the clerks to do you know, a full two weeks of POCUS. And you're like, great, I love it, very uh, appreciate the enthusiasm, but how does that fit into my overarching goals that are going to be there for the curriculum? Excellent. And sometimes you fit within a bigger curriculum. So your clerkship is a piece and other things can be within that piece, but then you may have to have to fit into the medical school curriculum or in residency, you may have a block 
or you're teaching about cardiovascular, but that's going to integrate with resuscitation and, 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 you know, geriatrics block and other things like that. So you, you kind of need to think about all those different pieces. Um, and so I agree, like goals and objectives have to have to have that alignment with the strategic plan above wherever you are. Um, and if you're really, really, really in charge, let's say you're like Dr. Sybil someday and you're in charge of the entire undergraduate curriculum. Well, even then you have accreditation standards to adhere to, right? So it is something where you're always kind of looking up to see what the guiding structures are. And sometimes that's even like looking at frameworks like CanMeds or CanMeds FM or the Triple C framework. There's all these frameworks that are out there that help you know, help you define some of this stuff. And so, I mean, for medicine, we've been pretty good with articulating some of these theoretical or actual tangible frameworks. And, and I think that that's where you need to kind of like really kind of make sure that your teaching and curriculum actually align to some of that. Um, all right, so after that, this is the fun part. Now you need to like actually make some choices as to what instructional strategies and how your instructional design is gonna actually work. And I think that this is where you wanna actually harken back to, you know, what are the goals? What were the needs, right? Because if the learners are like, oh my God, don't give us another lecture in their focus group, then you need to think about whether or not lecture is the way to go for your educational strategy, right? And if the learners are like, oh my gosh, we would just like a lecture because we all we do is do problem-based learning, then maybe it's the other way around and there's some happy medium between the two. And not to say that, you know, I don't love PBL, but some things especially when you're looking at efficient transmission of transmission of some level of knowledge, uh, it's really hard to PBL yourself through, um, let's say, ECG and learning how to read one. But um, but I think that there's role for other instructional design, such as a lecture, such as maybe a video cast, such as, you know, like even just drills, right? Like here's 10 ECGs, you know, practice, right? Compare your answer, learn, right? Like those are those are ways you can do it. So I think you have to pick the right modality for what it is that you're trying to teach. You need to understand if it's a skill, an attitude, or um, or knowledge, and then find and match things, right? So for us to necessarily substitute this podcast for another thing about Kern, yeah, of course, you could have like these six steps in a diagram, or you could have it in an e-module, but each time you make that design choice, there's different affordances. You wouldn't have that this side banter that we're having about our pro tips and where it fits and all that other stuff if you were just doing a lecture deck, for instance. And, and I think that it's also the idea that like not everything fits every scenario, right? Like as a simulationist, people are always coming to me and being like, hey, let's do simulation for this. And you're like, again, great, love, enthusiasm. But like simulation doesn't work for everything. And it's a lot of resources that go into it. And so, yeah, maybe it fits in, but let's make sure it's just fitting in for that one piece, right? And um, the pandemic has really emphasized how some of the educational strategies we're using were a little bit kind of rigid and weren't really adaptable for the new environment. And that's one thing that we've done over um, the last year is revisiting all of emergency medicine, um, that core curriculum for the clerks and saying, is this actually virtual friendly? Are we balancing things like synchronous and asynchronous learning? Are we leveraging some of the existing resources that are there, like the great blogs and podcasts, um, you know, that new app that'll be coming out soon, right? Like all of those things, are we really bringing those all to the forefront and, and showcasing it to the learners? Because I think one of the things in educational strategy is you could actually have a couple of different strategies and the learner can choose, right? So maybe you have a podcast, maybe you have a blog, maybe you have a video, maybe you have like a little, you know, snippet from a textbook or something like that. Maybe you have an e-module, maybe you have the, you choose your own adventure modules that we've kind of developed, right? Like you have a couple of different ways that the clerks can look at the same thing. And so when you're thinking about your learners rotating through, you may want to ask yourself that question. Do I have a couple of different ways that they could approach the same content? Because we know that spaced repetition is really important for them, right? 
Excellent. And so educational strategies be okay with having a couple of things different ways, have some videos for some people have a paper for some others have a podcast for others, you know, maybe think about what it looks like to have, you know, infographics or other kind of graphical design. Um, because the more that someone encounters something, the more that it, it might stick in their brain, right? And so I think that the more it might stick in their brain, and I think that's important for us to to consider when we're designing things. Okay, so that's the funnest part. Let's be honest, of the six steps, that's like my like my favorite. I hate running objectives. I kind of like reading what other people have done, but like the needs assessment process can take forever. And so I have to say, educational strategies is the part that I always look forward to. But the other part that I look forward to is implementation. So that's number five. And so um, implementation really is about like all the logistics, right? And, you know, as a logistically minded person, it means like making sure that someone shows up on Thursday morning when you're supposed to do a curriculum, right? Uh, and and have someone actually fulfill that curricular objective and be on, you know, the right slide deck and make sure they align their slide deck to your goals and objectives, make sure that they know where their piece fits, right? Um, famous story I tell a lot of people about why I'm interested in medical education is I, I sat in my first couple of months of medical school and we had six heart failure lectures and not a single lecture in our cardio cardiology block at the time because of illness, because of other like mitigating circumstances, but there was not a single lecture on myocardial infarction. <laughs> and so, you know, like it's just one of those things where sometimes you need to take a step back and this is, you know, for, I think they didn't mean to do it that way, but because it, the curriculum had evolved and there had been some, you know, illnesses and all of a sudden you just don't have one of the key things that probably every medical student should eventually learn about in a, in, in the curriculum. And it was a tangible absence um, when we did our exit focus group. We're like, so did you mean to skip all of acute coronary syndrome or is that something that like you know, you thought that we'd get somewhere else? Like, is it in vascular block or something? And and so that, that was a big part of it. Was, no, they just was included an episode of Grey's Anatomy and were like, you're good, you're, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to, you know, like, I, I think that there's a lot of great curricular aspects of what my medical school did at a time, but that was an example of, you know, sometimes things run away from you, even with your best intention, even with your best design, the implementation can fall apart. And so I think that that's where extra care and planning and redundancy and I think that one of the really cool things that we've done with the Mac Emerge um, curricula, whether it's undergrad, postgrad, especially undergrad, is that we we kind of have modularized it. So when you want to teach, like you get a slide deck. I mean, you can make it better. But you at least get the basic slide deck. So it's kind of like a franchise, right? You, you, you get the whole package for what you need to do to run the McDonald's, you know, the way you're supposed to. You have all the specs, you have all the stuff. Could you run an even better McDonald's than the guy down the street? Of course, right? But the the idea would be that you you at least have a basic understanding and a basic start point for the curricular objectives that you're trying to achieve. And that's really important if you're going to be having a team working on something, right? Because many of us will work in teams when we're designing this. And so if you are that person who has that role of overseeing it, that's where connecting with what came before my block and what comes after my block is really important. And then in my block, here are the things that I'm going to hand to instructors in it so that there's a ready to run template for them to kind of pick up on and absolutely add your expertise, encourage them to add their clinical stories, be creative with that content, but you don't want them going off on left field and doing something completely outside of where you kind of developed it. And so in that implementation, you need to also think about synchronicity, right? So how many staff do you have available to teach something, right? So something again, like simulation, very resource intensive. 
you need a location, you need equipment, you need people who are trained in specific things like debriefing, you need people who can kind of run the actual case, right? And so that might be very high stakes. So if you're at, you know, uh, let's say a community hospital, and you're like, hey, I'm trying to develop a curriculum for the two clerks who come through a month, right? then maybe that might be too ambitious for you, right? Maybe you need to think about, okay, maybe I'm going to develop like a little bit of a lecture series or Q&A series or a case-based, uh, you know, module that, that'll complement the existing things that we already have. Or you're, you're a preceptor for a resident who's going to be joining you on a couple of shifts or things like that. You could even design a microcurriculum for them that fits in and, and scaffolds on the macro curriculum around them. Yeah, and I'm recently been working with a postdoctoral fellow who's really interested in micro-learning. And I think that that's where blogs, podcasts, other kind of micro learning ability can be integrated into your formal curriculum so that people can do some co-curricular learning as they call it or um, extracurricular it's not really extracurricular because it augments their learning but this is where a podcast series that goes above and beyond for someone who wants to just go like let's say someone's super keen on emergency medicine which we do get a lot of emerged kind of gunners and keeners and and so they're reading like you know all the free open access medical education stuff that we've talked about in the past um, on the podcast uh, because they want to learn more and they're really enthusiastic and really excited about emergency medicine. So I think thinking about those extracurricular or co-curricular kind of creations can be very helpful. And so I think that that's one of the things that um, you may want to consider is how do you fold some of those in and how do you acknowledge them? All right. And then so the sixth part. Sixth part is another part that often daunts people. So evaluation. Aleem, what does evaluation mean? I think it's just really about did you actually achieve what you set out to achieve, right? And that's like the fundamental question you wanna answer and the complexity of how this works depends on where you want to go with this, right? And so if you're thinking, I'm gonna create some type of scholarship with this, then you wanna think about, you know, which of the four levels of Kirkpatrick are you gonna kind of aim for? Or is this something where I just need to know, like, did it kind of hit the objectives? And that's kind of enough, right? I think the central questions that you wanna answer here, especially when you're starting a new curriculum is what kind of hit the mark and what missed? Right. And I actually really like those kind of like PDSA style modules for this, where I, I kind of start and say, okay, this is what I designed. Here's the first iteration of it. Let's go back and say, how can I make this better? Right. And after a certain number of iterations of, of running it, then you can kind of fade that back in because you know it's kind of like working quite well. And you'll start to see there's a bit of saturation in the feedback you're getting. You're getting kind of similar responses here. You know, if this is something where you're running a curriculum on your own, like you have a couple of learners rotating through with you or a resident, this might be something as simple as sitting down with them at the end of it and then having a chat and saying like, so what did you think, right? And what are some of the formative pieces of feedback you can give me? What works really well? What could I change? And that might be enough for you in, in sort of that small things. As you get in a larger scale and you're starting to run like an actual program, you might want to have this in a much more formal and documented manner so that you can bring it to your committee and kind of look at how you can revamp it from there. Yeah, for sure. Like if you're doing a one off session, probably some kind of like survey afterwards is good enough. If you're looking at a larger curricular implementation where you you want you might need a whole bunch of different surveys for all the different sessions and then to amalgamate those and try to bring that all together. Right. And at the mega level, like, you know, in my role as associate dean of CPD, we have to, you know, do reporting to our accrediting body, which is CACME. And that's, that's academic, like you know, academic uh, rigor is important, but we need to do a very holistic review of all our different services and service lines and how to report. And one of many of us have done to do postgraduate like residency kind of like accreditation or undergraduate graduate accreditation. And so all of those kind of implementations 
there are forms of programming evaluation. This accreditation business that we talk about, right? So um, on a mega scale, it can be very daunting because there's a lot of paperwork that goes into it. But luckily, you often port over and copy and paste from your last um, version of that. And so that's nice, right? And, and I'll, to be honest, like a lot of the time, we always I already have websites, we have annual reports. And so, you know, it's not as daunting as you think. You got to populate those anyway. And most, most programs will have some sort of reporting that they have to do either just to the constituents to say, hey, look, we did this many teaching sessions this year. This is amazing. And it's more like a humble brag and to engage your audience. But some of it's to make sure your stakeholders know that you're paying attention to their needs. Sometimes it's it's for other reasons. And so um, there's lots of really cool ways that you can get involved in program evaluation and probably already have been as you fill out your course evals and stuff like that, right? So that's kind of cool. Um, on the flip side, um, and current kind of mushes both evaluation of programs and assessment of trainees into the same category. So I'd say that's kind of like the 6b is thinking about how you're going to assess your learners right and so again this is under that umbrella of did you did you do what you were supposed to do because if you've been given curricular objectives let's say we need to make sure that undifferentiated abdo pain is something that our medical students are actually able to handle well that's now integrated as a mac dot which is like a micro kind of like um assessment that is a direct observation of teaching um and that the trainees have to, you know, see and like have a little passport called the Mac Dots, and they have a little app, and they have to take care of someone with abdo pain, and then I have to rate them and give them feedback. And it's formative and it's wonderful, but the idea would be that for some reason we were the rotation that ended up having to put that assessment and tool into into play. And so I think that that's a big part of what we have to do is be, be attentive to the assessment structures that are needed. And so whether that's an in-training exam for a residency program or a progress test for undergrad or, or postgrad, um, and it might be quiz questions for CME, like uh, assessment can be very important because it helps you understand at least an aggregate, whether or not your curriculum is knocking out of the park or if there's a distance between the two. And if you're implementing this yourself, like let's say you're just giving a talk for you know a program or something like that, and you kind of made it down to this point, that might be something as simple throwing in some quiz questions along the way to check understanding. I love the Zoom poll function. Like I'll often drop that at the end of my talks and just be like, "Hey, can you give me some feedback?" I'll even ask like simple questions like, "What what did you really like?" or "What could I change?" Sometimes, um, like in my orientation, I'll ask, "Did I answer all your questions?" because that's really the purpose of the orientation, and it's just a simple straw poll, and that gives me like immediate real time feedback, so I can make an adjustment even in that session itself, right? I might be like, "Oh, okay, you know, I asked." You know what went well and there's nothing and what what could be changed is this whole long list maybe i need to go back and review a topic or maybe i need to answer some more questions from from the group there so it can also be something that you as an individual use in real time to adjust your teaching all right um and i think that like we've talked about this framework so current six steps as if it was something that only people who are running clerkships like yourself can use but i actually think that you could probably as a longitudinal preceptor think about using these elements Think about, you know, once you've gotten to know your learner, you're kind of doing your needs assessment, right? And maybe you'll do your like general needs assessment and program, pro problem identification after you've gotten to know them, after you've had your first shift. You know they're a PGY2, so maybe you're looking over like all the stuff that PGY2s usually kind of have trouble with. Maybe you talk to a bunch of other people, maybe you look for some advice out there, um, and then you realize that PGY2s often need these kind of things. And then you're kind of like adjusting and you're playing with that to see if this PGY2 in particular you have for the entire month is going to have the same needs. Uh, and then after that, 
you're going to be thinking about the goals and objectives and you're probably going to collaborate with them to that figure out if they have EPAs, for instance, if they're World College trainee, if you're if they're a keener for, you know, uh, CFPCEM program, then that PGY2 might have like uh, field notes that they need to have filled out, things like that. So you're going to start thinking about what the assessment tools are, how they're going to set their goals, what are they trying to get out of the rotation. And I think that that's where the customization and the learning strategy. So some people start bringing ECGs if the learners like, I really suck at ECGs, you're like, great, you're going to see every test patient, I'm going to show you every ECG that we have together, uh, I'm going to bring in extra ones for you to do, here's the Malma 2 book, uh, you can borrow it, and I'd like you to do 10 a day, like Kuban Math, like you can actually add those instructional stru structures um, on top of your clinical shifts and like follow through, because you're going to have a longitudinal kind of mini curriculum with them, right? And then after that, like you want to actually implement it because that's a lot easier when you've just got one learner um, and you're the implementer, that's like way easier. But then you might also want to like follow up and make sure that, you know, like you're emailing them learning receipts, doing this other stuff in between. And I think the last part would be to think about how, how you then get their feedback about it, right? And so it's an end of one, so you're not gonna use, probably use a formal like a uh, feedback system, like a survey, because that seems overkill. But you might want to just like say, so how did that go for you this month? And then get them to tell you what they liked and they didn't like and what you should never do again, right? So, and, and acknowledging that sometimes you have to take that with a grain of salt because each learner will have their own preferences and you'll have to adjust it anyway. But I can imagine using all six of those steps with a single trainee over a more longitudinal experience. And it totally mirrors um, a previous seg segment where we went through that shift uh, structure, right? Where you kind of start with your opening preamble and you set, you get them to set the, some of those objectives and then you're picking some of the educational strategies, right? Because some of that might be like you were saying to Chen, like, here, I'm going to show you EKG. Some of it might be patients. I'm going to show you, it might be I'm dropping some of those, um, you know, co-learning pieces along the way, right? I might be emailing them blogs as we're going or references for studies that we've recently looked at or, or giving them some of the um, things like journal feed. I love, I love sending people articles from that because it's just like quick, Two seconds, you can kind of read through it in a quick review of the literature, and um, and then kind of building in those cycles for for feedback afterwards. So, um, just to review, kind of the six steps again. So we're going from that general needs assessment to targeted. We're going to set specific uh, objectives and then have overarching goals that will kind of uh, uh, override kind of that curriculum. We're going to think of educational strategies. So that's exactly what am I going to do for each of these pieces? What type of modality am I going to choose? You know, lectures, simulation, PDL, experiential. Um, implementation is some of those logistical questions, right? Who's going to go where? Who's going to do what? Um, kind of drilling into some of those details to make sure you have that. And then your measuring outcomes piece has both the measuring outcomes of like, how did it go? And then did your learners learn something? And so assessment kind of falls into there as well. So that's really exciting. And uh, I hope that all of you have learned a little bit more about what it is that, you know, is behind the scenes, but we'll probably bring you back another time, Aleem, to talk again about more educational behind the scenes stuff and we can branch into uh, some other topics another time but thank you very much for tuning in to teaching in the counts see everyone thank you for tuning in to this episode of the mac emerge podcast we hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region remember we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!